0: The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. As Jesus drew near Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If this day you only knew what makes for peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days are coming upon you when your enemies will raise a palisade against you. They will encircle you and hem you in on all sides. They will smash you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another within you, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The Gospel of the Lord. How long does a cut flower last? Days, weeks, months, years? An odd question to begin a homily with, I recognize, and yet one that is very pertinent to the woman whose life we celebrate today, Saint Elizabeth of Hungary. Again, in our present day, not a saint about whom many speak, not a figure toward whom one sees much present devotion. And yet, today's memorial is obligatory. It must be celebrated. And obligatory memorials are not reserved for marginal figures. They are those who have had a significant impact on the life of the church, not merely in a region, but on the church as a whole around the world. And so the church around the world is obliged to celebrate this woman's memory today. Padre Pio's memorial is not obligatory. St. Louis de Montfort's is not obligatory. St. Faustina's is not obligatory. St. Maria Goretti's is not obligatory. Note how odd that sounds when we put it that way. And possibly in another 200 years, Christians will be saying, who exactly was Padre Pio? I know nothing about him. Um, Who was this Faustina? Who is she? And note how that works, how... You know, what is popular today or seems prominent today needs to be understood in the light of the fact that there was an age when other figures were very prominent, were very significant. And it would have been unthinkable in a certain time that no one would know who Elizabeth of Hungary was. How interesting. And we begin that way just by reminding ourselves that it is important to have a sense of our full history and to have a sense not simply of those to whom we turn today because we hear their names, but also of that broader set of relatives that we have across the centuries. The woman that we celebrate today, Elizabeth, as an infant was betrothed to a local noble. And so she was sent to his palace and grew up there. Her husband obviously then was a much older man than she was. And as she grew up and grew into a young woman in the palace, she made it a point never to turn aside the poor who came. In fact, she received them into the palace. She didn't simply meet them at the door. And As a young noble woman, she became notable for the compassion and the gentleness with which she received those who came seeking help. And her husband was pleased to allow her to continue to do this. And it got to the point where she would then leave the palace. Rather than the poor coming to her, she would go to them, seeking them out. So there's a marvelous incident at one point in her life where her husband had been out hunting and so she took advantage of his absence she'd gathered supplies and she was carrying food and other goods for the poor in the neighborhood near the estate and as she's going she has her packages and everything held in her garments and she's pressing them to her uh, against herself struggling to hold on to it because it was heavy And her husband catches her on the way. And he's puzzled and he's surprised at seeing his wife so heavily burdened with something. But it's all wrapped up. And so he comes up to her and he greets her. And he says, what's what's going on? What, what is all of this that you are carrying and where are you going and what are you doing? And she smiles, but she doesn't answer right away. And what happened was as he opened up the garment folds, he didn't see packages of food or clothing. It was around this time of year he saw white and red roses hundreds of them white and red roses at a time when roses simply don't grow he took one of those roses and he had it with him for the rest of his life how long does a cut flower last this rose detached from its physical stem its physical plant survived for years in that husband's keeping. The rose of his wife's charity, the rose of his wife's kindness, this remarkable rose that was always a sign of the beauty of the charitable work that she had done. Uh, what What a marvelous, marvelous image that is. And this idea that the rose itself was drawing life from some other source, not an earthly source. Because as we know, a cut rose doesn't last that long. You're not going to get one year out of it, let alone many. And unless there is some other way for that flower to draw life. And it's a reminder of the life that Elizabeth continually drew from Jesus. She in her charity was like a rose grafted on to a vine filled with life and filled with vigor and filled with goodness. That her charity towards so many is the continuation of the charity of Jesus. In fact, it is rooted in that charity so much so that after her husband died the other members of his family drove her off the estate and she and her children then lived in the same poverty of the people she had served all those years and yet even in that she was known for her joyfulness and her generosity as much need as she and her children experienced She was generous within that need even then. Whatever was given to help her found its way almost immediately into the hands of somebody else. And in doing so, we see as well that her charity wasn't dependent on her wealth. Her charity wasn't dependent on her privilege. Her charity was not dependent on any earthly source. Note how marvelous that is. Because one could always say, well, you can can be generous because you can afford to be. And yet when she could no longer afford to be, she continued to be. When the rose is plucked out of its luxury, when the flower is plucked out of its safety, when the flower is plucked out of its comfort, still it blooms. Still its perfume fills the air. Still, its beauty is visible. What a remarkable example this really is. Then how wonderfully the rose that her husband plucked from those many articles that were going to be given away and its permanence, how well that communicates the beautiful permanence of a heart that is well-rooted in Jesus Christ. And having said that, then we turn to that stunning first reading from the book of Revelation, where Christine, as she was reading it, was probably thinking, "I love it when I get readings like this." <laughs> um, it's the continuation of that remarkable vision that we had yesterday of. The Lord enthroned and the elders and the creatures with all the eyes and the seven candelabrums burning before him and heaven shaking with the thunder of their praise. And now something new happens because the vision crystallizes for John and in the midst of all of that overwhelming content, he notices that the one on the throne is holding something in his hand. And it's a scroll. And again, in the strange way that the book of Revelation speaks, he says, and it was sealed, so you couldn't open it, but it had writing on both sides. And you sit there and you say, like, if you couldn't open it, how do you know that? <laughs> um, And, um, but, but note in a sense these puzzling descriptions are at the service of saying it's a complete communication. It is a complete statement. There is something within it that can only be accessed by opening it and reading it and it is complete and thorough. But, it's sealed and so No one can read it, except obviously the one who wrote it, who is sitting on the throne. And suddenly then, again, the division division assumes a considerable amount of time must have happened. Know what it says. Who, who can read that? Who is worthy and strong enough to receive the scroll, handle the scroll, Open the scroll, breaking the seals, and then read. Who can do that? And we're sitting there thinking, well, it's got to be one of the four living creatures, the guys with all the eyes. Or it's got to be one of the seven spirits of God. Or, you know, we got all those 24 elders and their thrones and their gold crowns. and Surely it's one of them. And the answer is looking across all of heaven no one is found worthy and then looking from one end of the earth to the other all of those who dwell there the holy the unholy the mighty the weak the wealthy the poor the powerful the powerless no one on the earth either no note no, the thoroughness of this there is no one presently on earth who is worthy to do so, and just to be complete, and under the earth, among the dead, among the damned. Likewise, no one is mighty enough or worthy enough. And so the vision, the vision turns on this idea of who. And note how he describes it. It's implying that I'm looking at this scroll, and I long to know what is in it. And I wonder who could show me, who could teach me. And I look for the one who can teach me, and I don't see him anywhere. And so he says, deeply moving away, I shed many tears. Now imagine that. We, we tend to think of the visions in the book of Revelation as these moments of just awe-filled ecstasy. But he says here that I was weeping over this. I was saddened in my heart. I shed many tears, which means I wept a lot and for a while. However brief the vision may have been, there's an intensity about it, an intensity of feeling, an intensity that moves him greatly. And he's grieved at the fact that the scroll is there with its seven seals, and it's in the hand. No one can receive it. And in that marvelous moment, of grieving and longing and realizing that no one is qualified, we have in brief a statement of something that the religious heart has struggled with across the centuries. The fact that we're willing to settle for a second-rate messenger all too easily. The fact that because we're desperate to know will go to any source of information. Anyone who sounds like he or she knows what they're talking about, that's who I want to hear. Note how low our standards become the more desperate we are to know something, the more confused we are. We hunt for scraps of information. We cling to half-truths and mistruths. And we wonder why we're so easily led astray. And what do we see here? even among the angels, holy and brilliant as they are, no one can handle the scroll. The fullness of the revelation, the fullness of the truth of God can't be given by an angel, can't be given merely by a saint, can't be given by a well-educated person or a talented and eloquent public speaker. No one is worthy. And because no one is worthy, there's grief because I'm not gonna settle for a second-rate message and a second-rate messenger, but I don't know how I get the real one. And it's at that point that one of the elders says, calm down, calm down, we've got this. Because there is one who has been victorious. And the one who has been victorious, the one who was slain, that's the one. Note how marvelous this is. Not the one who is mighty, not the one who is wise, not the one who is kind. The one who was killed, the lamb who was slain, that's the one who is victorious. And it's the complete opposite of worldly thinking because, well, if he died, obviously he didn't win. And so note, the one who was slain is the one who is victorious. The lamb. And so the lamb comes forward. An odd lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, but a lamb all the same. And the lamb comes forward with a fullness of strength and a fullness of vision and wisdom. And the lamb comes forward. The lamb who is described, oddly enough, as the root of David. Not the son of David, the root of David. In other words, that one upon whom all of Israel's history, indeed all of human history, is founded. Jesus is not derivative of anything. It's not that Jesus comes from David. It's David and the kingship and everything about it is rooted in who the Lamb is, who Jesus is. The history of the world is rooted in God's desire to save us in Jesus Christ. Everything builds around that and flows from that, even though it comes at a late moment in our history, It is actually the origin and the reason for the movement of history itself. And So the one victorious in history, the one upon whom history has been founded, is the one who will take the scroll and open it. Because he is the one who gathered the just for heaven. He is the one who in shedding his blood Note how, note how note, again, note how thorough this is. By shedding your blood, you have won for God. Men of every race, and language, and tribe, and tongue, and people, and culture. Not simply from Israel, but from all the nations not simply in one language or from one culture but the spilling of your blood has won for god those of all cultures those of all languages again note how totalizing that is all of the world has been claimed for god by the lamb and so the lamb is the one who can receive the scroll break open the seals and reveal its content to the world. And in saying that, in saying that, it says two very beautiful things. Humanity has access to the fullness of the truth of God in and through Jesus Christ and from no other source. In and through Jesus Christ the fullness of saving truth comes to us. And it comes to us first because Jesus in his humanity risen from the dead, son of God, son of Mary, fully divine and fully human can stretch out a divinely human hand to that scroll and make its truth clear to his brothers and his sisters. Note how wonderful that is. Hidden in the mysterious details of the visions that we've been lingering with yesterday and today is a deeply profound truth and mystery. And we see here the lamb who is victorious is also that one who is the height of revelation, that one uniquely through whom we have access to the fullness of all truth. And this is what saddens Jesus in our gospel reading. He's going to Jerusalem where he will be slain, where he will win his victory. And even as he approaches the city, he looks out over it. And looking upon that city where he is going to give his life, he weeps. He weeps over the city for its confusion it's hardness of heart, and the fact that it will be destroyed. What he says about the city comes true a short time later. The city is destroyed, its walls are torn down, its buildings are razed, the temple will be destroyed. That will all happen. Jesus is not speaking in metaphors here, he sees, he knows where history is heading. And he knows the future of this city. And it's a future that's passing. And he says, if only you knew where peace is found, but you don't. And here he is referencing that attitude of the heart that had John weeping. I wanna know. I want to know, but I don't know where to find it, so I'll just start grabbing anywhere. And you didn't recognize the moment of your visitation. That's why this will happen to you. And when the Lord speaks this way, what he is not saying is that the destruction of the city is a divine tit-for-tat. You rejected me, and so in my anger, it's going to be really bad for you. Rather, what he's saying is this, you didn't know who the savior was, and so you followed somebody else. You didn't know where salvation was found, and so you tried to grab it for yourselves. Note the difference. It's not because I'm mad and I I punish you in my anger. It's because you followed the wrong one, and you brought the destruction down upon yourself because false messiahs did rise up. False heroes claiming that they knew the way to kingship and authority did rise up. They knew the way. They had the power. They knew the secret. They would fulfill God's promises. And everything came crashing down. How easily the heart in its desire to know, follows the wrong one, listens to the wrong voice, stretches its hand out to the wrong source of salvation. And when we do that and we build our lives around it, the outcome is that sooner or later it all does come crashing down. And so the Lord weeps because that's not what he wants. That's not what he longs for because he's come to save us from that. And so again, we come back to the beauty of John's vision. No one else is worthy, but he is. And he is the one. And the closer we draw to the Lamb, the closer we are to the fullness of the truth that saves us. How absolutely wonderful that really is. And we celebrate saints like Elizabeth of Hungary because they show us in the concrete here and now and flesh and blood of living what that means. When life is rooted in Jesus, the rose remains permanent. It draws its vigor, its beauty, and its life from no earthly source. And because it doesn't draw from an earthly source, There's a marvelous permanence about it. The more we root ourselves in Christ, the more that is true of us as well. Amen.